All right, well, tonight uh, we are going to get into Revelation 9, verse 2. We covered all of one verse last week, but to be fair, we did look at the entire chapter of Joel, chapter 2, that went hand in hand with this. Um, doesn't count, apparently. So, in verse 2, we are going to basically pick up on what we left off with verse 1, where we simply saw when the fifth angel sounded the trumpet that there was this abyss that was going to be opened. And we talked about what that abyss was and who is this angel that was given the the authority over that. Um, so just kind of keep that context here for verse 2. Before we get into this, I kind of want to just share something that was on my heart that I was talking with Julia about here, Julia, other Julia there, in regards to um, culture and its power. And it just struck me this week as somebody had mentioned that you cannot... You know, it's not fair that these millennials are called millennials just because I was born between this age and this age that I'm, you know, attached that I think this way. And I thought, boy, isn't that so true, though? There's a reason that these generalities or um, what's that word? Labels and, and whatnot go to that because culture is so powerful that in, the, in a decade that you see a whole world of people of that age starting to think a certain way. Now, I think social media and those things have really promoted that and have made it go faster. But it made me realize how important it is that we keep a biblical world view. Because if we allow culture, our upbringing, well, the church has always done it this way or whatever. If that's our guide, you will, not might, you will think differently than what Scripture says. You will think differently about what Scripture says. And we all have to take a step back and say, I, I'm not going to, I'm going to get rid of everything that I know, and I'm just going to let Scripture speak. Now, it's impossible fully for us to do that. We live in a world where we're affected in so many ways. But I know that when I wrote this book on Revelation, that was my goal because I knew what I was supposed to teach and believe based on what I grew up and was taught, the doctrine of my church. But I had learned some other things that kind of went against the doctrine of the church that I was in at that time. And as a result, it's like, man, I, I've just got to take a step back and start with a clean slate. And with Revelation, probably just as much as any other book, I guess, we need to do the same thing. Because there is a lot in here that you've probably heard, whether it be talking about rapture or a 200 million man army coming up. There's, there's no other you know, time in history that would have had that except for now today we have it, the Chinese or Islam. But are they even talking about people? But we have heard those things so many times that it has become part of our culture within the church. And so I challenge you to try and just look at what Scripture's saying with a clean slate on all of this. Let Scripture interpret the Scripture 
and don't even believe anything because I'm telling you it. You need to go and look for yourselves. But don't bring your biases in with you. Go in with a clean slate as much as possible. So, verse 2. He opened the bottomless pit and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Well, last week we said that the one who holds the key to this bottomless pit, who, who was given the, the key to open it, was an evil figure, and I still stand by that. There is a theory out there that I just want to let you know, I'm not going to get into too detail outside of mentioning it, um, that that was an angel that was actually good or has repented. And that it's a possibility that these locusts are angels that are once fallen angels but have repented and they too have been now redeemed and are serving the Lord and doing his bidding. I, I don't believe that, but if you ever hear that, know that, yes, I am aware of it. I just don't agree with it. I see here that the authority has to be given to him. I see that this is indeed bringing punishment only to the ungodly. One of the arguments that they will use is a house divided against itself cannot stand. So you, don't, you can't have demons attacking the ungodly. That's attacking their own home. But we have to realize that this is a different period of history at this point. At this point, what we're seeing is judgment of God. It is too late. And these people who are being punished, the demons are going to want to do that. Because they're angry, they're filled with hate. They don't, that's what they do. It is their M.O. to have nothing but hate. There is no love. There is no compassion. There's no, you know, oh, I really don't want to do this. I'm sorry for this little child. No. They hate. And that's all they do. And I don't believe that there is any redemption for the angels. They were created differently. That's why the angels long to look into the gospel. That's why they were thrown out of heaven and so on. But we're going to hit a couple of things tonight that might challenge your everyday thinking. Number one is we see that these people are in an abyss, these demonic beings of some sort. Um, where did they come from? I think that in some cases, some of them may be looking at those who have been put into an abyss would be those in Genesis 6-4, the sons of God that married the daughters of men. Then when the, the flood comes, we see that they are thrown into the deep, into the abyss. We read in Peter where it says that Jesus went and he preached to the spirits in prison. That's this, Tataris is the Greek. It's a special holding place for eternal judgment. Not just judgment for a while, but eternal judgment, it says. But he preached to these spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago in the days of Noah. So today we often see people wanting to cast out demons. And I believe that that can happen, don't get me wrong. 
what we might hear even in prayers saying, I command you to go to the abyss. You never see that happening. That seems to be a unique place, a holding place, reserved for a certain day of judgment, as Peter tells us. And that seems to be maybe what's being opened up here. You know, we talk about the the guy that was demon-possessed, and Jesus says when the demon is cast out, they go into arid places looking for basically a host, a place to rest. Finding none, they go back to the host. Some have suggested that the abyss, the waters, uh, Jewish people see waters as kind of an abyss type of symbol. And the waters of the deep are, are very ominous to them for this very reason, because that's where the demons are. That's where the flood buried all of these things. Not only that, but it's interesting. This is just thought process. The human body is 70% water. When the demons went out of legion, they begged to go into the pigs. And then they ran into the water. Now, I think there's more to it than just trying to get into the water. I, again, I don't know any. All I know is a Jewish understanding of the abyss oftentimes has a significance of water associated with it. And um, that's where the flood buried them. And like I said, the Bible says it's a, a, a holding place for eternal judgment, but for the day of wrath as well. So maybe now it's them that are being released at this time. Now, I don't know if it's meant to be a picture of this, but if you think of the Sodom and Gomorrah, when Lot was leaving the city, he looked back, and Abraham, even he could see, it looked like smoke rising up from a furnace, it says. And here, it says the smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. It kind of tends to take your mind back to that. We know that Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible says... Is to, they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah was a picture of this. No question about that. And now this is happening. Um, except for this time, rather than just smoke rising up, we've got all these locust-type demonic creatures coming out. Uh, very possible, like I said, that these are some of the demons that are here now coming out, reserved for this day, but to torment unbelievers only. So what we're reading, I don't personally think we're going to see this. This is indeed for the unbeliever. Remember, just to remind you, we are not under God's wrath. You will not suffer God's wrath. You will suffer the wrath of the devil. Some of us, perhaps. Okay? I think that's more of the seals. But then we see this is the time for God's wrath. And we saw already in chapter 7 a sealing that took place of the, at least 144,000. And then we saw all the rest kind of with God in a sense. So I don't think we're here at this point. Anyway, um, 
Just think about that next time you hear people talking about sending demons into the abyss and casting. That place has been locked. You can't send people into this locked place. There was only one person that could do that. God did it. And there's now only one that's going to have the key to open it up. But when people are casting out demons, this is not where they're going. All right. Verse 4, they were commanded not to harm the grass or the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So, you have the seal of God on your forehead, you're safe. So far, it seems to be the people we know who have that are the 144,000. That's what we saw in chapter 7. He says, go and mark those. The mark, we talked about being the name of God. Here now we see the name, the seal of God on their foreheads. So letting Scripture interpret the Scripture, the only thing that I can see of who these people are for sure are that 144,000. Clearly these are not ordinary locusts because they would devour every green thing in their path. I showed you a video last week of Montana and just how in hours they stripped everything. I think they're here. Okay. The 144,000 are still here on earth around this. So how that happens, I don't know, outside of they're here. What we saw in chapter 7 was there was 144,000 sealed, and then he says, after this, then I saw a multitude of people from all nations, language, tribes, tongues, and, but they were in Jerusalem, basically, in Mount Zion. Right. That's the best that I can come to. I am not going to be dogmatic on any of this, but that's the best that I've been able to make sense of, yes. Yeah. So these locusts, unlike real locusts, are instructed not to harm the green things. So their job is only to punish the wicked, those that don't have a seal of God. Now again, as we're going to see with all of these, this should remind you of the Egyptian plagues. In Exodus chapter 10, we see the, the plague of the locusts and how they devoured everything green in the crops there. But that was just, it seems, a foreshadowing, a picture of what was to come here. That all of those things are recorded in Scripture for more than one reason. But it is pointing us to this very day. But just like in the Exodus, the Israelites were protected from that. Only the land of Egypt was affected. It seems to be the same here. They are protected. That same divine protection. Now, in Egypt, you were protected from some of these plagues, but ultimately the last plague, if you had the blood on your doorpost. If you had applied that blood to your doorpost. If he did, then it literally says in Scripture that the destroyer would not be able to come into your house. Well, what is the name of the person that's in charge of this? Abaddon or Apollyon, meaning destroyer. Kind of interesting that we see that connection. That's in verse 11 that you'll see that. In Joel chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, it says here, Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. 
It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? One of the signs of judgment coming from God, time after time after time, is to cut off the food supply. Now, interestingly, Joel chapter 1 comes before Joel chapter 2. Likewise, the seals comes before the trumpets. And in the seals, we saw a quart of wheat for a day's wages. And so we're seeing that same pattern, kind of like what we touched on last week, if you follow that through. I'd really recommend go read the whole book of Joel in connection with what we're studying here. In Exodus 10, let's look at this plague. It says, The locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were, they were very severe. Previously, there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth, find that interesting. Here it says all the territory of Egypt, and then it says the whole earth, except for Goshen. So that the land was darkened, and they ate every herb in the land of all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants or in the field throughout all the land of Egypt. You even see that there's so many of them that the land, it says, is darkened. The land was darkened. Now that's probably in part because they eat all the green stuff, but I find it interesting that we have all these locusts come up out of the furnace and they're going to also darken the sun and moon here with the trumpets too. Exodus 12, 23, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. I don't think it's an accident that we see that very same word destroyer used where here in Revelation, if you have the mark of God, Abaddon, Apollyon, the destroyer can't touch you because you have the mark of God, the blood of Jesus Christ. If you don't have Jesus Christ, this is a very sobering thing to be reading. Verse 5, they were not given authority to kill them. Kind of like Job, remember Satan? You can do whatever you want, you can do this, you can do that, but you can't kill them. So another reason I think these have to be evil, demonic creatures, is it's almost like they would kill if they had permission to, but I'm not giving you permission. But to torment them for five months. Can't kill them, but they can torment them for five months. It says their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. This is probably one of the most gruesome, scary verses in Scripture for me. I still remember a friend of mine, Gene Baldwin, back in Oregon, saying that he used to be a, a mortician. And seeing guys that had been caught up in an auger, I've probably mentioned this before, where their bodies were just twisted and torn and ripped apart. And he said, you know, it's interesting that the Bible says that we get new bodies in heaven, the godly, but it never says that about the ungodly. And he thought, I wonder... If these people, you can just see their mangled parts having to drag themselves around with no ibuprofen, no, none of this kind of stuff going on. Tormented 
but you cannot die. Because remember, this is just a tent that you live in. Your body can get wiped out, but you will live on forever and ever and ever and ever. Yeah, I mean, this is torment. And God is allowing the demons to do this. This is not God doing it. He's allowing the very ones that they worship, the very ones that they wanted to serve, they're the ones that are doing this. It's kind of the same thing what God does with us. He says, listen, he'll harden your heart. When you read about Pharaoh, we hear this stuff about God's sovereignty and, and predestination and whatnot, the elect. Well, remember that Pharaoh, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart at the end. That we continue to reject and reject and reject and reject. And he finally says, okay, I'll give you over to your own devices. This is what you want. This is what you get. It's not me. I'm just letting you have what you wanted. We read about that in Romans as well. It says in Romans that uh, God gave them over to shameful lusts. He'll give them over to their own desires. These people who have wanted to say, God, get away from me. I don't want you. I'm going to reject you. He finally says, okay, I'm stepping back. I'm allowing the ones that you serve to deal with you. And so do not think or blame God and look at this part in Revelation and think, oh, a loving God wouldn't do that or this is unjust or unloving of God. This is actually quite fair. This is him giving you over to your own desires and this is whom you serve if you do not serve God. And this is not his fault. This is not what he wanted. He wants them to repent, but they won't. He even says of Israel, all day long I held out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. All day long, please, 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 I'm here. I want to help you. I want to love you. I want to protect you. And they were, they were obstinate and disobedient. All day long, God is holding out his hand to us. And yet, we are going to be obstinate and disobedient to his word. Because, well, this is the way we've always done it. Or, or, or you know, uh, this is what I see, because this is easier. We don't have to do this anymore. I was talking with somebody about the Sabbath this week. And, again, it's like, we don't have to do that anymore. That's a mosaic thing. Well, so is... Don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery. So you don't have to do that anymore. Good thing, guys, you can go, you know, hijack, uh, I want to say hijack, but, you know, rob a bank or the 7-Eleven, right? Because, hey, you're free now. Jesus fulfilled it for you. So don't worry about those other things. You see, we still want to be disobedient because we have our own desires and our own uh, hopes and dreams and don't want to offend people or whatever the case might be. All day long, he holds his hand out saying, I want to bless you. I want to bless you. I want to bless you. And you're like, no, I got this. I'm going to serve myself. I'm going to serve the world or whatever the case might be. 
Jeremiah 8.3 says, wherever I banish them, all the survivors of this evil nation will prefer death to life, declares the Lord Almighty. When God turns his back on you, let me tell you, you will prefer death over life. That is just unimaginable to me. Now, this five months is also interesting, the time period, because this is the time period we see the waters of Noah's flood rising, these five months. Um, the flood waters, a covering, a destruction of the world, that's what it's a picture of. And here we see the same kind of imagery. Now, uh, neither the locusts nor the men themselves are given the power to kill, meaning you can't even commit suicide. We kind of touched on that, but never put it quite in the words of suicide. You cannot kill yourself. And that just, again, might go against what we can think of or imagine. But like I said, when you remember that your life is not in this body, if God does not allow your soul to leave or your spirit to leave your body, you're stuck there. Peter says this. He says that uh, one, a man who has suffered in his body is done with sin. And I've loved that verse. Uh, it's in 1 Peter 4, verse 1. He who has suffered in his body is done with sin. And I love that because the suffering that we do now is nothing compared to this. And so I'm not talking about this necessarily as much as it is our suffering that we go through now. He who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Or in Hebrews it says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood for the gospel. I am amazed at what suffering does. You know, Polycarp or even is it Peter in, in Acts chapter 16 being whipped flogged and then going back into his cage and singing songs instead of whining in the corner like I would do. And you think there's no way that somebody could do that in the right mind. And they're right. You, you can't in your right mind. You have to have the mind of Christ. And when you put your focus on Christ, then this suffering in the body doesn't seem like much. That's how Polycarp could say, light the flames. And I don't mean to be blasphemous or demean what Christ did for us, but we often focus on the suffering of Christ. Oh, the pain that he went through with those nails going through his hands and feet and being whipped and oh, I don't think that was anything compared to the suffering of taking the sins of the world upon himself. Because... The physical suffering I think he could handle. Frankly, there was a lot of people who have done similar suffering physically. But there isn't anybody who's taken the emotional suffering and torment that Christ did in taking our sins upon himself. I think that rather than putting our focus on the pain, you should be putting it on the sins that he took upon himself because that's where the pain was. 
I always use the example, and you probably heard me say it, of my dad making me shoot a 375 Winchester Magnum gun with, to shoot deer with. And if you don't know guns, that thing would bring down an elephant, literally. It kicked like a mule. And I was this little twerp, brand new, first year hunting. And he'd make me put a milk jug up on a fence post and try and shoot this thing. Well, I could never hit it because all I could think about was keeping the gun tight on my shoulder. Because if it's not tight on your shoulder, it'll, it'll leave a bruise like a volleyball on your shoulder. Well, I would always like, boom, shoot the gun. And then I would look to see if I hit the target. After I realized I made it, I survived. My focus was here all the time. So I could never hit the target. But then we would go hunting. I never thought once about keeping it tight on my shoulder or anything. All I, I'm just boom, boom, boom. And the deer, as I say, would either run off or blow up. <laughs> well, afterwards, I remember having a headache that was to beat all. And it's like, why do I have such a headache? It's because I was being thrown around by a gun. But I never once felt a thing. Because my focus wasn't on me. It was there. This is what it says in Hebrews. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. See, God had something in his mind when he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame so that he would sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy set before him? For God so loved you. You were the joy set before him. And now he's just asking us to do the same. Make him the joy set before you so that you can endure your cross that you need to bear. And so, these people, they don't have that. You do, when you endure the wrath of mankind, the wrath of the devil, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross. But these people, wow. They don't have it. Now again, Psalm 22 clearly shows that Jesus felt physical pain. I'm not saying he didn't. Don't take me wrong on that. I'm just saying that was the least of his problems. And I don't think that's where our focus should be. I don't think that's what he wanted you to focus on. Um, back to Revelation 9 here, verse 7. The shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. So you're going to see that these guys are not, these aren't your regular locusts. On their heads were crowns of something like gold. Their faces were like the faces of men. I think that gives it, an even more demonic aspect, to be honest. Because these demonic beings often take the, the form of man, a, a humanity. It, it gives it an intelligence. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth was like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. I've heard some say that these, because as John is seeing this, that he can only put it into words that, you know, to his reality, things he's seen, and that he was actually seeing like an Apache helicopter. 
because it has a face of a man, the man in the cockpit. Okay, it's got these stings that you know can shoot out things to bring pain. It has the uh, the whirring of the things, the sound of chariots, and almost looks like hair kind of things. You know, I, I think this is demonic. I don't think that Apache helicopters are going to come out of the abyss. Okay, but this is one of those things that maybe God will use the natural. And that this is. So I, I won't rule it out, but I'm just going to say I'm not on that fence. That's not where I'm at. We're on that side of the fence. But some have said that. Um, like I said, the breastplates, like breastplates of iron, the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. Um, Job gives a very good description of horses going into battle that kind of fit the focus, anyway, of what these locusts are. And he says this in Job 39, Do you give the horse's strength or clothe his neck with a flowing mane? That hair like women's there, the horse. Do you make him leap like a locust, striking terror with his proud snorting? So now he is comparing horses and locusts, just like we see in Revelation. He paws fiercely, rejoicing in his strength and charges into the fray. He laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. He does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against his side along with the flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, he eats up the ground. He cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. All this imagery. Now, again, I think... A literal horse fits this fully. But it's interesting, the same imagery used here in the book of Revelation for this. At the blast of the trumpet, he snorts. Aha! He catches the scent of battle from afar, the shout of a commander's and the battle cry. Point being, though, is that the, the sound of the fifth trumpet, these locusts are taking upon, I think, the same attitude. I think that's the picture that is given here, that they're excited these demonic beings who have been locked up in this abyss for the last few thousand years are now like free and they've been reserved to do this very thing, this very purpose, and they finally get to do it and they're going to love it. They're going to leap into your houses. There's no place that you can hide from them. Something like a crown might indicate the part of the locust's natural body that gave them the appearance of a victor's crown as well. I, I don't know, but um, it, it doesn't say a crown. It says something like a crown. So it could just be something that looks that way. I, I don't know. But to me, demons seem to be the most logical explanations. If this is the case... As I already pointed out, they were given power to do it. They love to do it. They possess and torture the souls of men. Okay, because they're not allowed to kill them. Um, the lion's teeth shows that power to destroy, to wound. So all of this is very fitting of a demon, not... An angel. I do not believe that it brings God joy or glory, or I'm not going to say glory, 
joy or happiness to bring punishment upon people. He desires that all men should come to repentance and to know him. He desires that none should perish, he says. That's God's desire. So when this is happening, I think it grieves God to bring judgment. It pleases him, but it grieves him as well. It's that mix of emotions. Okay? And I think these demons love it. I think they are excited. That's the picture that we seem to be painted here by the scriptures. And that doesn't seem like a a good angel to me. So, Joel 1.6 says, A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. It has the teeth of a lion and fangs of a lioness. Here even in Joel chapter 1 again, we see the same picture of some, this nation, an army of some sort invading, and it's without number. So large you can't count them. Same imagery. In Joel 2, we looked at this last week, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just the highlights. Talking about the locusts that have the appearance of horses. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. They can't even die for five months. Okay, every face turns pale. Maybe all the blood's rushed out of their body, but their body's still alive. I don't know. Could just be they're scared to death. Again, before them, the earth shakes, just like we saw in the previous trumpets and seals. The sky trembles, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine, just like we saw in the seals before these trumpets. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? So, like I said, we looked at it again, so I just wanted to kind of remind you of that um, before we went on. Verse 10, they had tails like scorpions and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. They had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in Abaddon is, or in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. One, who is, one woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. So, the king over these guys is the destroyer. Again, doesn't sound like good angels to me, good angels who have repented and are now on God's side. These have a king over them. Both Abaddon and Apollyon mean destroyer, whether it be Greek or Hebrew. The very nature embodied in, of Satan so I think that it sounds to me like the king over them could be Satan, although it doesn't say that. Now, at the end of the fourth trumpet, the inhabitants of the earth were told that there were three final trumpets coming, three final woes. So verse 12 warns now that there are two woes coming. But the message is basically, if you think this is bad, just wait. So... This is actually one of the easier ones. And you think, how can it get worse? But that's what it's saying here. Now, I don't think that any of us are going to be able to wrap our minds fully around what's going on here because I do believe this is supernatural. 
And I think that when that time comes, and you'll understand as you are protected and probably watching on from Israel there, from Zion. Don't know how this all goes down fully, but you will understand. Those who are wise will understand in the end times. All I know is I'm thankful I don't have to go through this. And I think scripture has been very clear about that. You cannot deny that. No matter where you put your rapture, no matter where you put a tribulation, you know, God's wrath versus man's wrath, because it says to not harm any of them that have the seal of God. And so clearly this is unbelievers only. And that's something you can rejoice about. But at the same time, it's something that should make you think, oh my goodness, I know somebody who could go through this. And the next time you talk to them, I want you to envision this because I want you to think, maybe that's what I need to actually picture. The reality of this guy or this gal being tortured and no repentance because that's their future. I personally think no. I could be wrong on that. There are those who are saying yes, that maybe that's why the 144,000 are there, is to preach the truth. I don't know when the, the two witnesses seem to be in the second half of the three and a half years. I tend to think that that's in the seal period, not in the trumpet period. Could be wrong on that. But possibly... However, what it seems to suggest scripturally is no. Yep. It's, it's the 11th hour. No one is hired after that in Jesus' parable. We see that once that clock dings or whatever, it's too late. And then now God will harden your heart as he did with Pharaoh. That he has all of these plagues, all of these bad things go on. And Pharaoh could have repented. He has a free will to do so. But then God finally puts up, he's fed up and he says, all right, I'm done. Now I'm hardening your heart. Now I'm going to send these things. But you will not repent. And Pharaoh is a picture of the Antichrist. But there is a point when that 11th hour comes Nobody is hired anymore. And what we're going to see in these next verses coming up is it says, and still they refused to repent. They would not repent of their sins, their magic arts, their sorceries, all of these things. And so it seems to be that even no matter how much pain and wanting to die for five months, they still are incapable of repenting at this point. That's the way I'm seeing it. The, the wedding banquet and the ten virgins, both of those parables seem to say that same thing. Outside, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You, you're protected in your hoopah, as we talked about before in Mount Zion. But outside, there's just weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's punishment going on. So, as scary as that is, it, it's good for us to meditate upon that, not for you outside of your loved ones, and those that you should say, you know what, I don't care if they don't ever speak to me again. It's worth damaging this relationship 
to give them truth. And maybe someday they'll know. I remember listening to some guy, I don't even know who it was, but he was a, a prostitute pimp basically in uh, uh, Las Vegas. So the high-end pimp, whatever those guys are called. And he said Christian after Christian would come and witness to him. He made, he some, made some of them go crying. Left them crying, some girls that he would leave crying because he would just destroy them. And that they probably went home thinking it did no good, but he said God brought him to him, and he repented years later, and he says, I can still to this day remember every one of those people that came and talked to me. And they think it probably, you know, they left feeling defeated and as if it did no good, but God would not let his word go come back void. God was going to let that simmer and set in their lives until one day it produced some fruit. And you don't know, but I'll tell you what, it is worth losing a relationship or looking as to be a freak or not fitting in with our society or even in your own church to keep this from happening to your loved ones. Some of you might remember a guy named Kevin Pulver out of Kennesaw. Okay, that's a guy who didn't care what people thought of him because he knew what truth was. And he would go out and evangelize. And I'll be honest, I didn't really feel comfortable evangelizing with him because he had a different style than I did. But I could never say he was wrong because what he said was truth. He liked to yell it out more than I did. But I could not say that he was wrong in anything he did. It was maybe a different style than I would prefer. But at least he was doing something compared to the rest of the church. At least he was giving the word out. I'll tell you this, there isn't a prophet in scripture that you would have thought was a normal guy. There isn't a one that you wouldn't have treated just like they did with Kevin Pulver in Kennesaw. They, they all say, oh, you know what kind of crazy guy he is. Right? What was the prophet that every time I bring him here, he tells me what I don't want to hear? Yeah, yeah. Micaiah or whatever his name was, Jehoshaphat and Ahab. Yeah. And I think that that's the thing that we have to realize is that Speaking truth is not going to be popular even in the churches today. Standing up for truth and standing up for the word of God is not going to be popular. You have to be willing to say, I don't care, I'm not here for them, I'm here for God. Verse 13, then the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Again, these angels had been prepared for the hour and day, month, year. Um, they are released, released the four angels. They have been bound at the great river Euphrates. The Euphrates is a picture of evil. These are not good angels. These are evil angels, just like what we've seen here with the locusts. And so now we're into our second woe, the sixth trumpet here. And the voice is coming from the golden altar. Is that the altar of incense or is it the brazen altar? I don't know. Both of them had horns on. 
But in chapter 8, verse 3, we saw that there was an angel offering incense, which was the prayers of the saints. Does this, is this a picture of the saints' prayers being now answered? How long, O Lord, until you come and avenge our blood? And now one from the angel, or from the, the altar, who had those prayers is going out. And that prayer is about to be answered. It's a possibility. The other thing is the brazen altar there in the Old Testament, it had those four horns on there. If you ever did something wrong, you could go grab onto the horns of that altar and you were safe. It was like base. Until you could be taken off to court to find out, you know, if you were really guilty or not. But the horns were safety. And what we see here then is this is also where those horns, the blood or the, uh, the blood on the Day of Atonement or Judgment Day was poured out on those horns. So you also have a picture of this safety for us who are innocent because of Jesus, but it brings judgment for those who are ungodly in a picture of judgment being poured out. So it could be either one of those altars. I don't know which. Um, just as we saw the angel of the abyss that you know was king over the locusts, now these angels are in charge of the destroying horsemen. So you got one guy in charge of all the locusts. Now you got four angels in charge of all of these horsemen that are coming out. The Euphrates River. That is basically, uh, it was centered in Babylon. Babylon is the mother of harlots. I find it interesting that Babylon and the Euphrates are going to be brought up a lot in the book of Revelation. And when I look at church culture today, it is filled with Babylon. Filled with it. And the church defends it to its dying day. Will defend Babylon and all of the things that Babylon has brought to the church. The mother of harlots. It was even the root of post-flood sin. The Tower of Babel came from that. Uh, so much, you know, I'm not going to get into all those things, but even when you look at Nimrod before and, and all of these pagan, pagan gods and the things in the sky and all of that that we see, the paganism there comes from, from there. Historically, the Euphrates River has run about 1,700 miles in length. And it was a boundary between Israel, God's people, and Assyria and Babylon, the ungodly, Israel's enemies. Here in Revelation, it also seems to be a dividing point between the good and the bad. Um, in chapter 16, verse 12, if you just look ahead a little bit, you're going to see this river is going to play another very important part in the Armageddon battle because the Euphrates River is going to dry up so that the kings and their armies can cross the Euphrates River. Because the Euphrates is mentioned, a lot of people are going to attach Revelation 9 and Revelation 16 as being the same thing. I don't think so. The only thing that is the same is the Euphrates River is mentioned. Everything else is different. And so do not put the 200 million man army in connection 
with these horses. I think it's completely different. But a lot of people, a lot, a lot, a lot of commentaries on Revelation will say that this is the 200 million man army that we read about in Revelation 16. Now, first of all, I don't think that that 200 million man army is necessarily human. Second of all, an interesting kind of trivial fact, I guess you might say, is uh, the number of horses that are in the world today. Even if you include donkeys and those kind of things, mules, both. Mules, donkeys, horses, you don't even get 200 million on the entire earth today. What's that? Okay. I, I've got it somewhere here in my notes. Maybe I'll find exactly what that number is coming up here. But just an interesting side note here. So in Revelation 16, uh, at least at this point, there's not even enough horses. And here, I don't believe then that these are going to be humans in, in essence. So... Um, in chapter 6, verse 8, we saw the pale horse and the seals, and one-fourth uh, of the wicked men on earth die. Now, here you see one-third. That means over one-half of the world's population is destroyed. Let me put this in perspective for you. There's about um, 7 billion people on the earth, uh, nearing 8 billion That means we're going to say roughly about 2.4 billion people die. 73 million people died in World War II. So that means that's over 30 times the amount of people that died in World War II will die here. That's an incredible amount of people. Well, we are uh, coming close to the tabernacles, but... I don't want to just focus on tabernacles, so we'll be talking about this coming up as well. That before tabernacles, we've also got the Feast of Trumpets. It could be very significant that the trumpets are going to be part of the trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, after that, you have the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement, I think, is Judgment Day. And then after Judgment Day, then you have tabernacles when, hey, everything's great and the millennial reign basically begins. And so, I don't know. There's a few different ways that you can attach these things in. What I do know is that these fall festivals clearly seem to be pointing to end times results or end time events. And so, trumpets could be pretty much the end of the seals. What happens at the end of the seals is it does seem that we get to go to be with the Lord. We're taken to Mount Zion. Then we see these seven trumpets go on where there's destruction taking place outside of our hoopah, just like in the parable, the wedding banquet, but outside there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then when this is done, you will see then after all the punishment has taken place, that's not even hell yet. They have to go through judgment. And each one will appear before God and stand before their creator. 
and give an answer for the things that they have done. And then they will be cast into the lake of fire. Do not equate lake of fire and abyss. They are different. The abyss has been a holding place leading up to this. But once these guys are out, now they're next going to be thrown into a lake of fire. That will be eternal hell and damnation. We'll get to that later in chapters 20. But for now, I want you to see the patterns of these fall festivals. We'll talk about that more as we get going, and we are going to probably soon take a break from Revelation to cover the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement as we approach those now. So tabernacles, we get to have a lot more of a celebration, but we're really studying about trumpets right now. I think that a big part of what the Feast of Trumpets is about is not just that we get to go be with our Lord, but punishment is being dealt out as well. So, um, one interesting thing here from the very first, um, I must have put that on my other computer, but anyway, from the 1st to the 21st of the month of Tishri, Trumpets is on the 1st, Tabernacles is on the 21st, it's 21 days, three sets of seven. I don't know what that means, but I find it interesting that the main sets of sevens in Revelation, you have seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven vials. Three sets of sevens in there. And so I don't necessarily think that each of these festivals is nicely set up between each of those things. One might begin in the midst of the seals or in the midst of the trumpets or whatever. I don't know, but... Just some symbolisms there. Um, Isaiah wrote of a future event here in chapter 11. He says, uh, in going into chapter 12, but I'm going to hit the highlights. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Euphrates Sea with a scorching wind. He will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that men can cross over in sandals. I think this is more specifically Revelation 16. Okay. But none the, I just want you to see the Euphrates for now. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. In that day you will say, I'll praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I'll trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. What's fascinating to me is this is a verse that is used for the Feast of Sukkot. Drying water from the wells of salvation. Sukkot and drying up the Euphrates are connected. We'll get to that to chapter 16 for now again. Just notice Euphrates because I want to show you this. This little blue line is roughly the Euphrates River there. And when I think of Israel, that is not what, this is not what I think of right here. I should say, this is what I think of. But when you look here on this map of Israel, you see the Sinai Peninsula, and then there's that just little chunk of Israel. Tiny little thing. But according to the boundaries that are listed in Scripture... Look what it says in Genesis 15, 18. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt 
to the great river, the river Euphrates. I often market it the Jordan River. Okay. 2 Samuel 8, 3, David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, the king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. God was told Abraham, all the land that you set your foot on will be yours. He walked through Egypt. He walked through just that and the land of Canaan, right? So in essence, we don't want to have this picture in our mind. We want this picture in our mind. Okay, Deuteronomy 11:24. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours, from the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the western sea, shall be your territory. And so that's covering a lot more land than our current land of Israel. So keep that in mind. Okay? So maybe you just go look at a map on to see the Euphrates and where that goes, and you're going to see that the promised land is much bigger than what you normally think of today. Yes. From Assyria and Egypt. Exactly. Because that's always been confusing to me. But in Isaiah 11, it talks about that very thing of these people coming, his people from Assyria and Egypt. And I think that that is part of it. The number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million in verse 16. I heard the number of them, and thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. So these horses coming out that these four out of the Euphrates and that the, the four um, angels have power over, this is what we always hear, oh, it's got to be China and so on. And as I mentioned, it, can't, it doesn't seem to be literal horses. There are 60 million horses on earth today, 112 if you include donkeys and mules. That's a far cry, about half if you include the donkeys and the mules. So again, this is not the same horde of chapter 16. But anyway, um, either this is an incalculable number or a literal one. I don't know. Since it doesn't say a symbol, I'm taking it's more literal. Very reminiscent of the, the fifth trumpet that the locusts came out of. Both are wicked. Uh, both go after wicked men. They are only allowed to harm and not to kill. Both resemble lions. Both had power in their tails, one like the sting of a scorpion, and this one has something different. Um, they're both fitted with breastplates. So there's something, a lot of similarities, but yet it is different. The red, blue, and yellow, this may correspond to the fact that fire is red, Smoke is, can be bluish and sulfur yellow, which is coming out of their mouths. So all of those things are there. The blue is a very, a, the blue that was used in the temple, by the way. So, uh, but anyway, some think that this could be modern weaponry. Uh, you know, rockets, whatnot. I don't know. I think this is more demonic. That's my opinion. Revelation 16, 12, just the one that I keep telling you, it's a different event. talks about the Armageddon battle. 
The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the river Euphrates. So it takes place in a bowl judgment, not a trumpet judgment. The water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. In other words, they're coming to fight the Armageddon battle at that point. Verse 18, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents, having heads, and with them they do harm. So scorpions and now serpents. Uh, is this another third of mankind? This is uh, a third after the quarter. So it's just, just the quarter and now this third. I kind of jumped ahead in this trumpet. Verse 20 then, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues and this is what I was talking about before, Mark, did not repent of the works of their hands. The rest of mankind who were not killed, that seems to be everybody, that aren't killed by this, don't repent. It says, They should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So they're going to blame God for the events going on rather than taking the blame for themselves. Uh, sounds like Satan. So even after the two witnesses, which I know has jumped ahead a little bit, there's still no repentance after that? I mean, I know they kill them and hang them up. We'll talk about that when we get to the two witnesses because, frankly, I'm not 100% sure where to attach those two witnesses at. I think it's in the seals. So I think in the seal judgments at that time, you will probably be able to repent yet. At the trumpets, I don't know. Maybe in the first four? Not sure. But it seems to be with the woes, it's done. But that's my understanding. So um, it, it's kind of interesting today that, that children today are, you know, shooting other students in classes and schools and, uh, you know, presidents and school counselors and principals and whatnot are trying to explain how these tragedies occur and you know we bring more programs and more counselors and more metal detectors into the schools and yet it only gets worse and worse and worse and worse why because we'll never take accountability we'll always blame something else but we'll never take accountability lot's wife it was only the night before that all the men of the town were threatening to kill her husband and yet she desired to stay. We're just like that. And that's the way it's going to be here in the end times. People are going to be blinded to the evils that fill their very being. No matter what logic, no matter what reason, no matter what scripture verse, they're going to hang on to their beliefs because they will not allow scripture to, to surrender to that, I should say. So... This is a very telling verse to me. Verses 20 and 21 show us that murder, sex, drugs, and the worship of anything but God continued to persist. The word sorcery there is also interesting, pharmakia or pharmacon. It's where we get the word pharmacy from or drugs. Uh, Mark, you sent me a very interesting article this week too talking about the, the leading killer in the world to this day is pharmaceuticals, drugs. Prescription, like it's called medical practice for a reason. 
And I, we were talking earlier that I can't help but think how many times we just are keep killing ourselves because we keep taking things to solve a problem that maybe God wouldn't solve if we gave him the time to do so and the faith to do so. I'm not against medicines. I think there's a place for it, but I would certainly try the natural stuff first and certainly try God before that or in addition to. But I could, I'm out of time, so I'm not going to go on that anymore, but I want you to think about that a little bit. Um, medicine is the leading killer in America today. So... In the days shortly after Christ ascended, Paul went to Ephesus. Terry, you can tell Selah that they can come. After preaching God's word to them, we see it says this in Acts chapter 19, verses 19 and 20. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. One drachma was worth a day's wages, so about $50 million in today's currency. Can you imagine repentance going on so that $50 million worth of satanic books or whatever would be burned? But in that way, in this place, here in Acts chapter 19, revival went out. The word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power, it says. If we get rid of the sorceries that we rely on in our country, just imagine what could happen if we trusted in the Lord. But all of this physical suffering will not allow these men or keep or get them to repent, it seems here. So instead, as we see in Revelation 16, verse 21 as well, all they do is instead curse God. We'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 16. But once your heart is hardened, it is too late. So in closing, this is what we've seen in the trumpets. The first one, a third of the earth was burned, and a third of the salt water turned to blood. And the second, the third, a third of the fresh water, then a third of the heavens, and the fourth. So all four of those dealt with the destruction of the physical earth. As we've seen, the first four follow a theme, then the next two follow another. And the last two that we've just seen focuses on the torture of the ungodly by demonic beings. And as we've seen, after the next two, then you expect a commercial break, an interlude, a parenthetical uh, chapter. We just finished chapter 9. When we get into chapter 10, we're, done. we're not going to, ch to trumpet number 7. We have this parenthetical chapter. We have this commercial break, this interlude. And then after we get done with that, in chapter 11, we'll get back to the seventh trumpet then. And that is our final woe, the third woe of the three. And then the vials are opened, and the, all seven vials are composed of that third woe. And so that's a little outline of what we've seen here with the trumpets, and it's following the same theme we saw with the seals. Four, then two, then commercial break, and one. The same pattern that we have seen throughout all of history. 4,000 years, and Jesus came, switched themes, 
2,000 years. Then there's going to be a commercial break. And then everything goes on. Are we in the commercial break? So, or is the seven-year period, the seven-year tribulation that commercial break? I don't know. 